0: Good morning, again, you can take your Bibles and open up to Titus chapter 2. Seminary was a very busy time in my life. had much to do and little time to do it. But Once I finished seminary, I found myself with something I had not had for a very long time, and that was free time. Free time doesn't last last long. It usually finds a way of being taken up rather quickly, but right after seminary, I started using some of that free time to do something that I had always wanted to do, but never had any time to even start doing, and that was to learn to play golf, or at least to try. Uh, something I always wanted to do. I learned very slowly, and I still have a long, long way to go, but it was fun at the time at least, and i, I I always figured that learning to play golf would make my grandfather proud. I never knew my grandfather, he died when I was an infant. But, from what I've heard, true story, he was the main caddy for Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope whenever they played in Los Angeles. I thought that was pretty cool. So I figured being golf, playing golf would be a, a good thing for me to do. Well, today there's a popular golfer named Phil Mickelson. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's kind of like, I guess, the moral version of Tiger Woods. Seems to be a pretty good guy. Anyway, because, or apparently, Mickelson's golf name is Lefty because he plays golf left-handed. Makes sense. The strange thing is that he serves a tennis ball with his right hand. He writes with his right hand. He picks up a fork with his right hand. Pretty much does everything right-handed. The only thing he does with his left hand or left-handedly would be to play golf. I found that pretty interesting and also pretty difficult If I try to do anything with my left hand, I instantly become worthless. I cannot do anything left-handed. But the reason why Mickelson's golf, or why he golfs left-handed, it's even more interesting. According to a golf biographer, when Mickelson was one and a half years old, he learned the game by standing across from his father and watching him practice swing and mirroring him. His father plays right-handed, so Mickelson simply mirrored his father's swing, which therefore made his swing left-handed. His years went by. There he was, just mirroring his dad, learning to play golf, just standing opposite to him, and just doing the mirror image, and he became a left-handed golfer. It's a fun story, but it really serves as a perfect illustration of imitation. Ephesians 5.1 tells us, Be imitators of God... As beloved children, God is our Heavenly Father and He is pleased when we watch Him and we do as He does. He wants us to imitate Him. He wants us to mirror Him. He wants us to learn to swing like He does, so to speak. God's our ultimate standard. and He is our model then for imitation. But here's the thing. How do you imitate a God who is spirit? How do you imitate a God who is so transcendent, so far above us, so different from us? It can be a challenge at times for a lot of people. I think God knew this, however, and and part of the function Christ fulfills is this. Being fully God and fully man, by imitating Jesus, we are imitating God. We have a flesh and blood example. When we look to Christ, we see precisely how God wants us to live on this earth. He left behind a model for us to imitate. Now, that wasn't the only reason Christ came to earth, and it wasn't even the main reason Christ came to earth. But nonetheless, he did leave behind for us a model, an example to follow. Christ now serves as our daily model. We can look to him and see God's standard for us in the flesh. That's why we're told over and over again to to follow Jesus, to look to him, to imitate him. Doesn't end there, though. You see, in God's wisdom, He knew that as Christ left the earth, as He ascended back into heaven, His example would be difficult to grasp for some people. I mean, yes, you can see Christ's model in the pages of Scripture forever, but some people, it's, it's as if they literally need someone in front of them in the flesh to guide them. They need someone next to them, to hold their hand, and say, This is how you live the Christian life. They just need that flesh and blood. Example in their lives, to interact with. At times, we need someone who models Christ so well that we can look to them and see what Christ looks like right here now, in the 21st century. This, however, this is nothing other than spiritual leadership. That's spiritual leadership. That's why God Himself made the provision for spiritual leadership in Scripture. God knew that we would need Flesh and blood leaders to guide us, to show us the way, practically speaking. And that's why he calls men and women from every generation to fulfill that role. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Are you familiar with the verse? He said, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, in one sense, you could, you could maybe be tempted to respond to Paul like, Paul, how could, how could you just say something like that? I mean, where do you get off telling us to follow you? We we follow Christ. Why should we imitate you? But Paul understood spiritual leadership. He understood what it was all about. It's about modeling Christ for the people around you. And to the degree that you follow Christ, people can follow you. You catch that? It's true for anyone. To the degree that any person models Christ, you can follow them. That is spiritual leadership. It's about modeling Christ for other people. Here's another verse, Philippians 3.17, where Paul, again, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So this time, Paul, he's not just pointing to himself as the example. He's pointing to everyone who has and lives that Consistently godly life. He's saying, follow them. Follow them too. Now here's another verse, Hebrews 13, 7, where the author of Hebrews says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, do what? Imitate their faith. It's very clear. It's explicit too. Look, we follow Christ alone. We know that. But God also wants us to follow, to imitate those who lead us to the degree that they follow Christ. So that's spiritual leadership. I want you now to stop, think for a moment. Could you say what Paul said back in First Corinthians 11.1? Could you say with, with any confidence to someone, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ? Could you say that with any confidence at all? Or maybe think about this question. What if everyone in the church really was just like you? What if everyone actually did follow your example? So the whole church was, every person was just like you. Would the church be better off in that case or worse off? Or would the church be more like Christ than it is or less? It's kind of a scary thought for each of us, I'm sure. You're probably thinking to yourself right now, well, I'm glad that's not the case, at least. I mean, good thing I'm not a spiritual leader, so that doesn't apply to me. But wait a second. Just because you may not be an elder or a pastor or whatnot, does that mean you're not a spiritual leader? Let's think about that question. We covered last week for sure for the husbands. If you're a husband or father, you are a spiritual leader. So you're definitely included in the mix. As a husband, you should be able to say to your wife, Honey, follow me as I follow Christ. That's your goal. That's where you're trying to get to. That's where you should be at. You should be leading your family in that Christ-likeness, in that pursuit of Christ-likeness. So if you're a husband in the room, you are a spiritual leader. What about parents, though? All parents. Moms, dads, even grandparents. You also are... Spiritual leaders, whether you like it or not, you are. Now, do you ever stop and think about that? Your kids, and even your grandkids for some, they will follow your spiritual lead to a huge degree. And they're going to follow your lead. And mothers especially, you perhaps have the most spiritual influence over your children than anyone, especially during those early years. So, that covers a lot more people in the room. Are you a parent or even a grandparent? You are a spiritual leader. We can take it one step further though because I'm pretty sure we've established over and over again that God calls all believers to disciple younger believers in the faith. Isn't that right? Pretty sure we've talked about that several times. Whether it's formal or informal, it doesn't matter. God wants all believers to, as they mature, start pouring in to younger believers their spiritual maturity and leading them in the way to go. So everyone in this room that's a believer, if you're going to obey God and fill that role of discipler, whether it's formal or informal, then sooner or later you're going to play the role of spiritual leader. It's just how it is. This is what discipleship is. And so the point I'm making is, Not so fast. You are more of a spiritual leader than you probably think and you're probably even aware of. comes with the territory. It's almost by definition for most of us. So the question you should really be asking yourself is, are you a good spiritual leader? That's the real question. Are you modeling Christ for those who happen to be following you or not? Just how much do you really follow Christ yourself? Could you truly say to someone with confidence, imitate me as I imitate Christ? If not, if you feel you can't, that's where you need to be. That's where you need to get to, where you're living yourself exemplary such that people could follow you and follow Christ. If you find yourself out there, you're starting to realize, you know what, I am more of a spiritual leader than I thought. You know, kids especially you're wondering, how can I grow in that? Well, step one is to first become exemplary yourself. Step one is to first grow to imitate Christ more yourself. If you're a husband or a father or a mother or a grandparent or just a believer out there, and you want to know how to grow in spiritual leadership, you just start with asking yourself, how can I first be, like more, be more like Christ myself? How can I be more like Christ myself? You do that, that's going to hugely impact your spiritual leadership. That's what will take it up a notch or two. All right, so where am I going with this? Why am I bringing all this up? It's because I think most people today could really use a lesson in spiritual leadership. It's not just for the elders or pastors of the church. It's it's for everyone. And guess what? The text we have before us this morning morning in Titus chapter 2 just so happens to teach us a key lesson in spiritual leadership. We continue to march through this this brief, but rather deep letter, Titus. We come to a passage this morning that instructs us about leadership, about spiritual leadership. So, if you haven't already, turn to Titus chapter 2, and let's read together verses 7 and 8. He says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So we transition into verse 7. Paul, he's no longer speaking to the church. Verses 1 through 6 we covered. He's talking to the people. But now he transitions himself and he's setting his sights on Titus, on Titus the man directly, the man, the recipient of this letter. I mentioned this last week, but that last or that first phrase in verse 7 where it says in all things, in the Greek there's no punctuation, so really it's better to consider that with the, at the end of verse 6. So he says, verse 6, young men are to be sensible in all things. Period or semicolon. Then, verse 7, new sentence, he's saying, You, Titus yourself, the key word is yourself, you yourself show yourself to be an example. He's telling Titus, You now, you be the example for the people. You personally be the example. It's kind of like this. Do you remember when you were a kid and you did show and tell? You know what I'm talking about. You would go into class. You would bring something, you would show it, and you would tell about it. It's not rocket science. It's pretty simple. I actually remember bringing in this awesome dinosaur pop-up book in kindergarten. I seriously remember that as one of my earlier memories. But I can't find the book anymore, which is kind of sad. But anyway, Paul is saying here, he's telling Titus, look, show and tell yourself. You be the living example for these people. Point to yourself as the example the verb for show it's present, middle, participle, which just means he's telling Titus, continually set yourself up as an example for these people. Just all the time. Characteristically be the example for them. And this word for example, it's tupos in the Greek. It's an interesting word. It was originally used to refer to a mark or an impression made by a pen or a hammer. If you were chiseling a statue... For instance, every single hit, every chisel would be a, a tupas or a typos. The word then came to be used of the statue itself more generally, or any copy of something else became a, a tupas. We get the word type from it, a type. The statue was a model or type of the real person. Now everyone knows the copy is always inferior to the original, Right? Copy, always inferior to the original. The statue, it's never as good as a real person. Never quite as lifelike as a real person. But the goal of the sculptor is to make the model as close to the original as possible. I guess he was a realist. That's his goal. This is what Titus was to do. He was to be the model, the example. He was to be the statue of Christ. And though imperfect, he was to strive to be as close to the original as possible so that someone could look and look at him, this statue, and see Christ and see someone that looks a lot like Christ or Christ-likeness. Do you get the point? Do you get the picture here? He was to work on his own life, chiseling away sin and imperfection bit by bit by bit Transforming and conforming himself more into the image that the likeness of Christ—that's his goal as a spiritual leader. And this is this is behind verse seven: Show yourself to be a, a tupas, an example, a type of Christ. This was to be the essence of his spiritual leadership. And this concept here of being an example— isn't it so critical for spiritual leaders? I mean, how important is it that leaders be exemplary? That their lives match their words, that their actions match their speech. It's huge. Would you want to follow anyone who lived completely contrary to what he preached? If instruction is not displayed in the life of the teacher, it will carry little authority. Spurgeon once said, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. End quote. way he's saying there is, you can say whatever you want. People are going to follow what you actually live or how you actually live. That's what they're going to take as as real. You need to take this and and apply it to yourself. Again, you may not be the elder or the pastor. You may not be a spiritual leader like Titus, per se. But God does call you to spiritual leadership to some degree. Therefore, you too must, verse 7, show yourself to be an example. That's an essential part of your spiritual leadership, whether you're a husband, wife, mother, father, grandparent, or just a discipler. You cannot lead people to Christ or to Christ-likeness if you're not living like Christ. Think of the Christian life like an escalator. It's a good way to picture it, in a sense. We're all on the escalator. We're all going up. We're going up towards Christ, towards Christ-likeness. That's the goal of our life, to be more like Him. And if you're on the escalator, there's always going to be someone higher up than you. So there's always going to be someone above you, someone more mature in the faith. And you look to them as your leaders, as your spiritual leaders, right? But if you've been on the escalator for any length of time, then there's also going to be people below you, people less mature in the faith, people just getting on, be them children or new believers. And guess what? They're looking up at you as the person higher up, On the escalator than them, so to speak. You're the spiritually mature one compared to them. You're their example. They're looking to you, and this is going to happen whether you like it or not. Whether you're a good example or not, younger believers will look to you to see how to live the Christian life. They're looking to you. So the only question is are you going to be a good example? Of course, we know more people are looking up at the the pastors and the elders because they're in in the spotlight, you could say. But we've already established no Christian is exempt from this exemplary living, the spiritual leadership. Believers are watching. The world is watching. So will you show them Christ in your life or not? 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, what? Show yourself an example of those who believe. Here's what I've done here. I've spent a lot of time up front belaboring this point that God wants all of his people to live as examples. I've done that on purpose because we're going to continue to make our way through Titus 2, 7 through 8 right now. And as we go through these verses now, I don't want you to be Sitting there asking yourself, do I really have to live as an example? I mean, is this really for me? I don't want you asking that question. Instead, I want you to be asking yourself, how? How should I live as an example? You see the difference between the two? Understanding this instruction is for you, we find the answer to this latter question, how should we live, in the rest of Titus 2 7 through 8. Once you come to terms with the fact that, hey, look, whether you like it or not, you're a spiritual leader. Now the question is, okay, well, how? how? How do I be a better spiritual leader? How do I then live as an example for others? Titus 2, 7 through 8. After Paul tells Titus to be an example, he then tells him how. How to be an example. What it looks like to be an example, a, a tupas, a type So let's continue on with the rest of Titus 2, 7 through 8 now. And let me point out to you four marks of spiritual leaders. To continue our theme in this chapter. Four marks of spiritual leaders so that you might represent Christ to others. Four marks of spiritual leaders so that you might represent Christ to others. Or in other words, Paul goes on to detail four ways in which Titus and others might model Christ-likeness Others. And you would do well to make these four marks a part of your example or your testimony to those who follow you. Let's begin with the first one. The first mark of a spiritual leader. They model right action. They model right action. Just looking at verse 7. He says, Show sure yourself to be an example of what? What's the first thing he list lists? It's good deeds. Show yourself to be an example of first good deeds. To be a leader, to be an example, it's it's by no means enough to simply say what is right. Rather, it's, it's just as important, if not more important, to do what is right. Spiritual leaders must model right action or good deeds. Good here refers to righteous Noble, excellent deeds. This is the observable dimension of the Christian life that faith produces. Now good deeds. It's a huge theme in the pastoral epistles. And by that I'm talking about First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. It's a huge theme, this concept of good works or good deeds. In First Timothy, Paul, he calls out women, widows, elders, and the rich. And he tells those categories of people to strive to produce good works. He says that should consume a lot of your energy, good deeds. In 2 Timothy, he calls out everyone, all believers, and he says likewise, strive to bear good fruit, to produce good works. I want to show you one verse. We're so close, just turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You're familiar with this verse, but let's look at it from this angle. Verse 16, 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know that verse, but why? Why did God give Scripture? Why is it inspired? Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for what? For every good work. It's really it's an amazing verse when you think about it. God gave you scripture. Not so that your minds can simply be filled. But also so that your hands can be active. God gave you the Bible. Not just so that you know a bunch of stuff. But also so that you do a bunch of stuff. That stuff being... Good works, good deeds, righteousness. Protestants throughout the ages have struggled with this concept of good deeds in this sense. We place such a huge emphasis on salvation by faith alone, apart from works. Sometimes though the the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Some see good deeds as being relatively unimportant, but that could not be further from the truth. I want to show you, I want to give you a, a biblical understanding of how good deeds fit into the picture, fit into the Christian life. And when we hear, like, okay, we're not saved by them, so where do they fit in? I want to show you this in Titus. It's such a huge theme in Titus, so let's, let's survey a few verses in Titus now, and I'll show you this. Start off in chapter 1, turn back to Titus chapter 1, and look at verse 16. This is talking about the false believers. So first, I'm going to give you the negative side of the coin. Talking about these false believers. He says, verse 16, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for what? For any good deed. So the point he makes first is that false believers, they're both proven false by their deeds, by their actions. And in reality, they're worthless for any good deed. Unbelievers can't do anything truly pleasing to the Lord because, as Hebrews 11.6 says, it's not done in faith. So that's unbelievers. That stands in contrast to, to believers. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Turn over to chapter 2 now, verse 14. Speaking of Christ, he says, "...who gave himself..." For us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for what? Good deeds. There it is again. What this is saying is that Christ, He redeemed us from all of our evil deeds, from all of our sins and bad works, you could say. And now He wants us to be zealous for good deeds. In other words, our salvation, this transformation, should change us and it should drive us to passionately, zealously pursue good deeds. That should be an effect of salvation. Let's continue on a few verses there. Chapter three, verse one. It says, We're saying to everyone now, remind them, the church, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Or here's another one. This one you have to get. So I hope you're tracking with me. If not, start tracking now. This is a huge key verse, and really the entire Bible, that you need to know. Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 5. It says, He saved us, Christ. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Just stop there. How clear is that? He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. There it is right there. That's it's, We're not saved by our works. It's crystal clear. Our deeds, our good actions, our good works, they do not contribute to your salvation whatsoever. You're, you're not buying a ticket in. So clear. But He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, how clear of a salvation text is that? Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, not of works. So clear, right? Where do works fit in though? Look at the next verse, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, the gospel, I want you to speak confidently. Why? Why should he speak confidently? Verse 8, so that those who have believed will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Do you see it? Those who have believed, those who have received this salvation now, he says, that they would be careful to engage in good deeds. What's he saying? You can't earn your salvation. Being a good person, trying to do your best, not going to be good enough. Your works are not even close to getting you to heaven. Only through faith in Christ alone can you be saved. However, this salvation involves a renewal A transformation where you become different. And you become now zealous for good deeds. You come alive and you can finally start pleasing God in your daily actions. And it is pleasing Him. God wants to see you now being transformed to overflow, to bear good fruit. You've come alive. Now it's time to bear good fruit. And those are good deeds, righteous deeds. Just look, look down to verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, to finish it off. Nearly en- ending the letter, he says, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. So there you have it. It is through good deeds or righteous living that believers can now bear fruit for God, that believers can now glorify God. So understand this first mark of spiritual leadership. Spiritual leaders must model right action. They must be examples of good deeds. They must understand how it fits. The only question to ask now is, so what are you going to do about it? it? It should be clear. So what are you going to do about it? It's about application. How can you be a better example of good deeds? We see so many people in the world around us the Catholic, the Mormon, the Muslim, they're trying so hard to live life and produce all these good works because they think it's buying their ticket into heaven. We know, Scripture tells us, that they are sadly mistaken. But the point here from our text in Titus is that, of all people, you, the Christian, the one saved by grace, you should be the one out there striving for good works. Not because you're trying to earn your ticket into heaven, but to the contrary, because you've already received your ticket, so to speak. Because you've already received grace and mercy and salvation by faith in Christ. You've been transformed, and so now you don't even have a choice. It's just part of your new nature to overflow in good works, in righteous living, to bear fruit. Of all the people in the world, those who truly know Christ are the only ones that can actually glorify God through good deeds. So again, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to strive to grow in your example? The Bible itself prescribes several good deeds. You know them, so so excel in them. Caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, teaching young children, visiting the sick, praying for others. Meeting the needs of widows and widows indeed, evangelizing the lost, sharing the gospel. The list goes on. Just think of anything and everything God calls you to do. Everything you do in obedience to God is a good work. So excel in this with the right heart motivation, and you'll be modeling right action. That is the first mark of spiritual leaders, they model right action. Let's move on to the second mark of spiritual leaders. They model right teaching. They model right teaching. You can go back to Titus chapter 2 if you're not there. Look at verse 7 again. It says, Show yourself to be an example of good deeds first. Secondly now, with purity in doctrine. Having purity in doctrine. I'm going to be brief with this one because we've emphasized this a lot in Titus already, but... Contrary to the false teachers of chapter 1 these true believers these spiritual leaders need to model right teaching. The word here translated purity or integrity in some translations means uncorrupted or unalloyed. The idea is your teaching is not subject to corruption. If you take metal and you put it in water, leave it there for a while, what's going to happen? It's going to rust. It's going to corrupt. That's going to hurt the integrity of the metal. What about gold? If you take gold and put it in water, what happens? Nothing happens. It doesn't get corrupted. And the point is that your teaching must be like this gold. Uncorrupted, pure, true, sound. He says with purity and doctrine that this word for doctrine, didaskalia, can refer either to the motive of teaching or the content of teaching, and both must be true. You have to have purity and motive. Contrary to the false teachers in chapter 1, they were teaching out of selfish gain or for selfish gain. You must have purity and motive. You must also have purity and content. That's just talking about orthodoxy. We read earlier in 2 Timothy, God gave us the scriptures to bring about Christ-likeness and God-glorifying works and believers. So, as a spiritual leader, you must pass on the right word. You have to... As a spiritual leader, lead people according to the book, according to the right content. We devoted an entire sermon to this point, back in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. So you can get that if you want more. I'm going to leave it at that. But the point is that for spiritual leaders, and especially those who lead the church in any capacity, they must model right teaching. Right teaching. Third now, third on our list. They model right behavior. They model right behavior. He says, "Show yourself to be an example of good deeds." Number one, with purity and doctrine. Number two, and then thirdly, now dignified. Dignified as our third mark of spiritual leaders. Looking for a a synonym here, it'd be maybe seriousness. This is someone who's respectable. He or she has a high moral tone and can distinguish between that which is important and that which is trivial. There's an accent of respectability to everything this person does. It's a widely used word in First Timothy and Titus. And I think this third mark is extremely relevant for young adults who tend to both not take things seriously and not take themselves seriously. That's not saying you can't have a sense of humor, that you can't laugh. That's not the point here. It's about understanding when it's a time to laugh and when it's a time to be serious. That's what it means. That's part of dignified, to be dignified. For example, you know, if you're on the ground playing with your kids, it's okay to be silly, goofy. I mean, that doesn't mean you're not being dignified like this third mark says. But look, if you have kids, for instance, that need to be disciplined, then it's a time to be serious, to be dignified. And the point in the text is that when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to the things of the Lord, believers and spiritual leaders should behave with a seriousness, a dignity about them. I'll just give you give you one example. There, there's a T-shirt that's become, I guess, pretty popular in the past few years. You've probably seen it around, especially if you deal with college students as I used to. You've seen you've seen the T-shirt. It's got a picture of Jesus on it, which I I, I didn't know we had a picture of Jesus available, but apparently they know what Jesus looks like. So it's got a picture of Jesus as a caption under the picture. And the caption reads, Jesus is my homeboy. You've probably seen the shirt. And I can sort of see how some Christians might construe that as humorous. But here's the point. The spiritual leader would understand there's just a lack of dignity there. There's a lack of reverence where there should be. God demands more. God is worth more. It's being dignified when it comes to spiritual things. There's a lot of popular pastors out there buy into this, this kind of cultural Christianity. and There are many out there who they are funny to listen to. They're amusing to listen to. They have a big followings because, hey, who, who wouldn't want to listen to them? They're very fun and entertaining. But they struggle to get serious. And when they do try and get serious in their preaching, nobody takes them seriously. They spend more time acting like stand-up comics than preachers. And so when it comes time to preach the gospel, if that time comes, it falls on deaf ears. The problem with this is that when it comes to spiritual things, we have a serious message. We're dealing with Serious truth. So sometimes you need to be serious with people. Sin is serious. Hell is serious. If man's problem was laughter, God would have sent a comedian. But man's problem was sin. So God sent a Savior. So learn that lesson. Enjoying yourself, enjoying others, it's good. It's a good thing. So we're not knocking, you know, having a good time, or laughing or whatever. But there's a time to be dignified. And so understand that time. If you want people to take Christ seriously, then you have to present Christ seriously. Not only in your speech, but also in your behavior. This is why, thirdly, spiritual leaders must model right behavior. Right, dignified behavior. We have one more. Let's finish this List this fourth mark of spiritual leaders: they model right speech. They model right speech. Number four: show yourself, he says, to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified. And then fourth, he says, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. This is talking about Titus's everyday speech. His day-to-day speech needs to be sound, above reproach. This is Ephesians 4:29. If you're not familiar with that verse, I want you to be. So turn there. I want you to turn there because you need to know this verse and be familiar with this verse. Ephesians four twenty-nine. Paul tells Titus, In verse 8, you know, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And that's so similar to Ephesians 4.29, which reads, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's what it looks like to be sound in speech. Your speech, it's sound, it's healthy. Your words, they give life, not death. Some people, they seemingly speak death. When they talk, their words have the effect of Christ cursing the fig tree. People around them just shrivel up. They're torn down. Rather, in your words, you should edify. The word edify means to build up. You should build up with your speech. Be sound in speech, which is above reproach. It means your speech cannot be condemned. No one can bring a charge or reproach against your speech that will stick. If I can revisit 1 Timothy 4 again, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Timothy 4.12, I read it earlier. Notice the first thing on Paul's list. He says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. It's interesting what comes first on that list. Speech. It even comes before conduct says, speech first, because there's a power to your words. Isn't that what James tells us? James chapter 3, 2 and 3. The tongue, it's a fire. It's so destructive, he says. The tongue, it's a wild beast. Nobody can tame it. You have an enemy to your souls living right within you, and it can't be tamed. So what are you going to do about it? As God said to Cain, sin is crashing at your door. You must learn to master it. So through Christ and through the indwelling Spirit, are you working to reform your speech, to have edifying speech? The saying is true. Actions do speak louder than words. That is true. But words are easier to come by. You will sooner slip up in speech than in action. The world is watching and the world is listening. You know how it goes. The world is waiting for just one slip-up from you. Just one careless word coming out of your mouth, and they will forever label you as the hypocrite. That's how they operate. For spiritual leaders, which you're called to be, it's so important that you retain your ability to influence others for Christ, and that you not forfeit this, Over unsound speech. This is why spiritual leaders must fourthly be sound in speech. So, what do we set out to cover this morning? Four marks of spiritual leaders. But why? Remember why? It was so that you might represent Christ to others. And back in Titus 2, verse 8, that's exactly what he says. Why should spiritual leaders model right action, right teaching, right behavior, right speech? What's the big deal here? He finishes off verse 8. He says, In regard to all these things, So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The point is that as you model Christ, they're going to be put to shame. They'll turn back. Their reputation will be discredited. And they will have nothing bad to say about us. Picture here is of a judge who can find no basis for the accusation of the plaintiff. The strong and upright testimony of the believer should put to shame any rash and unfounded charge. Your soundness in behavior and speech should render speechless your opponent. Doesn't mean you'll never be slandered, doesn't mean you'll never be accused. Look, they accuse Christ. But the point is that they'll never have grounds to accuse you of anything morally evil or wrong because you're free from blame. You're blameless. Here's the thing. You know you can't make people believe Christ. You don't have the power to make people believe in Christ, right? It's in God's hands. However, far be it from you to make people reject Christ. Do you want to be the people, or do you want to be the reason people give for rejecting Christ because of that person? You don't want that. Far be it from you to make people reject Christ through your actions or through your speech. Rather, it's up to you to live in such a way that the world is confronted by your life and that they are put to shame in their accusations. Hopefully, that shame will turn to conviction. And that conviction will turn them to consider the Christ they see in, their, in your lives. That's your goal, to live as an example, as a spiritual leader, to even show the world Christ. I want to finish with one verse. So humor me here, I turn to first Peter two. Maybe okay, I had just one more verse here. First Peter chapter two. Look at verse fifteen. First Peter two fifteen he says, in a very similar verse, for such is the will of God. That by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's your goal. By doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Doing right action, right teaching, right behavior, right speech. This is the portrait of the spiritual leader. And as we've established, that should be you. In some capacity, you fill that role. In the church, in the home, in the world, people are looking at you. The question is, will they find Christ when they look at you? Will they see him? Is Christ represented in your life? Are you pointing to him in what you say and what you do or not? You're in 1 Peter 2. Just look back up at verse 11. 1 Peter 2.11. This is a great verse. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers... To abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And that's the perfect verse to sum up everything we've been talking about. The point is, look. In this verse, you have these unbelievers, these Gentiles, he calls them. They see Christ in you, in your lives, and it leads them to Christ. I mean, talk about spiritual leadership or living by an example. You can't control whether or not people accept or reject Christ. But you can live in such a way that you are above reproach and that you are showing Christ to people in the way you live. That's going to lead people to Christ. That's the best type of spiritual leadership there is. Modeling Christ, living Christ for others to see. Believer, unbeliever, child, friend, disciple, whoever. You're modeling Christ for them. It's a story of a man named Joe. Joe was a drunk, but he was miraculously converted in a street outreach mission. Before his conversion, he gained a reputation as a derelict and alcoholic for whom there was no hope. But with his conversion, everything changed. Joe became the most caring person at the mission. He spent days there doing whatever needed to be done. No task was beneath him. Cleaning the toilets, looking after the other drunks who wandered in off the streets. He was always there, always helping, always serving. One evening after the mission director delivered his evangelistic message to the usual crowd of sullen men with drooped heads. One of them looked up, came down to the altar and kneeled to pray, crying out for God to help him change. The repentant drunk man kept shouting, Oh God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. The director leaned over and said, Son, wouldn't it be better if you prayed, Make me like Jesus? Thinking about it for a few moments, man looked up with an inquisitive expression and asked, Is he like Joe? See, this drunk man didn't yet really know Jesus. But he saw Jesus lived out in the life of Joe. And that led him to come to know the true Jesus, the true Savior, the one and only. So let me ask you, do other people see Jesus in you? Could they ever say, oh God, make me like him, or make me like her? Do you feel that by God's grace, someone could see Christ in your example? And consider, consider what needs to change in your life to make that more true. None of us are the perfect model of Christ, the perfect statue of Christ. Some of us have big slabs of stone that still need to be chiseled away. Just consider where you need to grow and, and start chiseling become more like him. Don't miss out on this. Live in such a way that when you get to heaven, you may be greeted by those who came to Christ because of your example. Through right action, right teaching, right behavior, and right speech, show people Christ that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord in heaven, we praise you. We praise Christ our example, the one who went before us. Lord, you, you showed us the way to go. You laid down your life for us. You left behind for us an example to follow. And we thank you for that. Help us indeed, Lord, to follow that example. I pray for all those here that they would they would look to you, first and foremost, and seek to conform their own lives more to your image. That is the key to their their spiritual leadership. That's the key to their own Christian lives, and in turn, Lord, may other people come to see Christ in all of us. As we leave these doors, as we leave this church and live our lives day to day, I pray that those around us, the entire world, may come to know you through our examples, through our models. Give us grace, Lord, so that this may be more true of us each and every day. Be patient with us as our examples fall short of our Savior, but We take heart, we take courage in the fact that Christ has already perfected us in him. And we just wait for the day when when you will return. We long for that day. In the meantime, may we all live as lights, live as, as examples in the world. In your name we pray. Amen.